Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. A famous philosopher once said to me that he objected to feminist critiques of sex because it was only during sex that he felt truly outside politics, that he felt truly free. I asked him what his wife would say to that. I couldn't ask her myself. She hadn't been invited to the dinner. You're listening to season two of Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care, and sadness, and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. My first guest is the mighty Amir Srinivasan, the Chichely Professor of Social and Political Theory at Oxford University, who's written for the New York Times, the London Review of Books and the New Yorker on a diverse array of topics including anger, education and the octopus. Did you know that an octopus does not have tentacles, it has arms? Me neither. She's also the author of a blistering and thought-provoking new collection of essays, The Right to Sex, which is already sizzling its way to cult status. I've been wanting to interview Amir since she wrote a piece that went viral in 2018 for the LRB, titled, Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex? After Reddit shut down a 40,000 member strong incel support group. We recorded this episode in late June, but it feels particularly timely in light of Britain's worst mass shooting in over a decade in August, where the gunman, Jake Davison, had made repeated references online to incels. We also talk about the concept of fuckability and how that has mapped onto dating apps, why abstinence-only education never works, the limits to cancelling famous sex predators, and what it means for Gen Z to be the first generation to learn about sex from porn, and why banning porn won't help. I start by asking Amir, what is the biggest myth about sex? The myth that sex is a purely personal thing. And of course, it is an inc incredibly personal thing. It's something that's very personal to us, and both in the sense of our sex, right, or relatedly our gender identities, but also sex as a thing thing we do with our sexed bodies, our sexual preferences, our sexual desires, our sexual partners, um, our sense of ourselves as sexual beings. These are these are highly idiosyncratic, intimate, personal truths. At the same time, sex is a political phenomenon, and that can be very uncomfortable to recognize. So, our politics including what's ugliest about our politics, things like racism and ableism and classism, and obviously things like homophobia and sexism, shape these facts about our sex lives, shape what, what it is we desire, who it is we desire, how we think of ourselves as sexual beings. I think that's, that's, a, major, that's a major myth, the idea that sex is just a kind of simply or merely personal uh, phenomenon. 
So something we think of as a private act is in reality a public thing. Not that you're advocating for sex to be had in public, gladiator style, <laughs> to be rated by others. What you're saying is that it is not beyond social critique. Could you expand on that? Sex, sex is this ambivalent thing. It, 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 it goes to the kind of core of who many of us are, whether we're having it or not, right? Whether we want it or not. And at the same time, it is this thing that is shaped by and in turn shapes our politics. And so... It has to be um, the object of a certain kind of social and political critique. It's got to be the case that we can comment on. And of course, there's a risk in doing that because we do want sex to be protected to a certain extent from a kind of public inquiry, right? I mean, if you think about the history of of gay women and men. I mean, for them, their sex lives haven't been, in a sense, private enough. They they have been subject to a certain kind of moral inquisition. And there's been a view that it's, you know, a public health issue. Homosexuality is a public health issue, or it's a threat to children. And so it has to be legislated against, it has to be controlled. And so for, for that reason, there is a very strong and important kind of political push towards keeping sex private. So thinking to ourselves, well, everyone has the right to have the kind of sex they want to have within the boundaries of consent. But at the same time, when we think of, of consent as the only kind of relevant moral or political distinction to be drawn between different kinds of, of sex, we sort of lose um, the full political complexity of sex. And we, and we stop ourselves from having difficult but important questions about the way that sex relates to things like oppression and domination. News reports and anecdata consistently inform us that the women who fare best on dating apps are white women, and those who fare the worst are dark-skinned black women. And it's been said about Love Island too that black women always get picked last. You put it so succinctly in your book when you wrote, Online dating, and especially the abstracted interfaces of Tinder and Grindr, which distill attraction down to the essentials, face, height, weight, age, race, witty tagline, has arguably taken what is worst about the current state of sexuality and institutionalised it on our screens. Could you talk a little bit about the politics of desirability and, as you put it, how we coax our sexual imagination into a new place yeah, great question. So, I mean, one thing to say about dating apps and, and Love Island is that in, in some ways they just kind of in, inherit and magnify what already pre-existed in our sexual culture. So Love Island and dating apps didn't invent sexual racism. It, it didn't invent the sexual hierarchy, the hierarchy of desirability um, that you see among women or among men, right? So you have a lot of sexual racism directed against uh, black women, especially, uh, as you said, dark-skinned black women. You you have a huge amount of sexual racism against Asian men. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very complicated um, phenomenon. I mean, you also have a kind of sexual sexual racism that takes the form of, as it were, a kind of positive attraction, right? So uh, think about the kind of fetishization of East Asian women, for example, or the fetishization of black men as being very virile. So it's bad to be in all sort of different positions in, in this sexual hierarchy. The problem is the sexual hierarchy itself. But I do think that the dating app uh, kind of institutionalizes that 
these problematic features of the sexual economy and encourages and maybe exacerbates those features because it encourages you, the dating app encourages you to think about people in terms of these basic demographic facts and also basic aesthetic facts. What kind of race do I want to date or will I date someone who's disabled or not, or someone who's rich or not. And so instead of encountering people as people in all of their extraordinary complexity, the dating app sort of encourages you to think about people in terms of these distilled characteristics. So I think I think they, there's a case to be made that dating apps make worse what was already quite bad about our sexual culture. We talk about having types and there's that common refrain, I can't help what I like when it comes to who we fancy. So one response to this is to simply say, well, as you know, as you said, well, you know, I like what I like, right? I can't help who I'm attracted to. And to a certain extent, that is, of course, right, right? So desire is something um, that's not simply voluntary. It's not simply a matter of choice. So what you've been exposed to, what you've been taught is attractive um, by TV, by media. And we can't just automatically undo that for ourselves. And you might also think that the project of trying to sort of force yourself to undo it is itself kind of problematic. It engages in a kind of purity politics. If if you are demanding that of other people, it can turn into authoritarian moralism where you're demanding of people that they they change their their desires in line with their politics. But at the same time, I, I do think just as a matter of psychological fact, there is a certain possibility of transfiguring our desires, or the way I like to put it is there's a possibility of kind of setting our desires free from what politics say we should desire. And I think many of us have had this experience, the experience of encountering someone, a certain kind of person who, for whatever reason, the kind of reigning political culture says we shouldn't desire. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual or romantic desire, might be even just something like personal affinity, right? We shouldn't be drawn to this person, and yet we find ourselves drawn to that person. And I think those moments, those moments of slight kind of revelation are are really important. They're really politically important, and they ground a certain um, hopeful political project. Queer politics has this, you know, appropriately ambivalent relationship to the question of desire and shaping desire. On on one hand, it's very important politically that we can say that the gay woman or gay man's desire is legitimate and should not be try we shouldn't try and change that desire or convert that desire. And at the same time, queer politics asks us to think more expansively and imaginatively about what what might be desirable to us. I want to pick up on what you said then about, is it discipline? You use the example in the book of a man who had been socialised or had grown up not finding people with larger bodies sexually attractive. And when his partner put on a lot of weight, he had to retrain himself or completely train himself in order to find him sexually attractive. And you said, is this discipline or is this love? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this wonderful man who who wrote to me after one of the essays um, in the book was it was published previously in the LRB and 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 it resonated with his own experience of sexual desire in relation to his husband who um, is you know is a larger man and he said that the phrase he uses I had to allow him to be sexy and he had to allow himself to experience him 
as sexy. He had to sort of stop politics from getting in the way of what was kind of in front of him, right? A politics that would tell him that this isn't a kind of desirable body. On one hand, I think everyone would like to be desired in quite a straightforward way. Everyone would just, it's not very sexy, the idea of someone having to work to find you sexy. At the same time, I think most people in long-term committed relationships will know that there is work that goes on um, in maintaining all kinds of relations with people over time, including sexual intimate relations. And, and it is the work of love, and it can be the work of love. I hadn't thought about it like that until you phrased it like that, that those two things don't have to be distinct. Because I think when you think about rewiring or rethinking who you fancy, why you fancy them, how you fancy them, it can feel like a bit of a drudge. Like, oh, well, this is just sex. It's meant to be fun. I don't want right. to police my, my preferences. <laughs> but I think the way you frame it as that it's an act of love, that many things are acts of love. And as you point out, in a long-term relationship, it's not like every single day you find each other seriously hot. <laughs> right. That's that's a that's a training in itself. Yeah, and there's just this broader thing. I mean, even beyond kind of the realm of sex, think about all of our kind of interpersonal relations. When you spend a lot of time with people, it's very easy to pigeonhole them, including, you know, your very close loved ones, your family members. And and Part of the work of loving them, I think, is to remind yourself how to see them, as it were, in the fullness of their being. Let them to be more mm. than, uh, you know, just, well, your mother to whom you have various kind of duties or your child who's just the source of annoyance at the moment, right? How do you remind yourself that they are this, they're this bigger, broader thing uh, than, 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 than you might be experiencing them uh, in a particular moment? It sort of comes back to, I feel like everything comes back to education. Mm. Only 25% of British people reported their sex ed to have been any good, which is really, really low. But I must confess, and I don't know if this is my terrible long-term memory or the fact that I went to a Catholic school, I don't remember a single thing about my sex ed. I do know we didn't even get as far as the condom on a banana move. I remember being quite jealous that that was like, that was a real like, early noughties thing when people talked about sex ed. We definitely didn't get that. But the curriculum has got better. It is changing, isn't it? It absolutely is. And there's a movement in that direction. I think there's a kind of general cultural recognition um, that sex ed is really, really important. And moreover, that if you aren't, that, that children are getting sexual education one way or another, um, the question is just from where. So it's a question of source and the nature of that education. And that's especially true in the age of internet porn. Um, and every person in the UK, every young person in the UA, UK now comes of age sexually within the realm of internet porn. Even if they themselves aren't looking at it, they will have lots of peers who are looking at it. That informs their sexual imaginations, their sense of sexual possibilities, their sense of what the correct sexual script looks like. And so that's where sex education is happening. And so the question isn't, you know, should we give them, you know, should students have sex education or not? The question is just like, from where? Where do you want these students, where do you want young people to be learning about sex from? I was really staggered to find out recently that 19 states in the US still teach abstinence only education. 
So basically the only sex education is don't have sex and they don't teach how to use protection or, you know, how to put on a condom. Yeah, it's 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 really shocking. I mean, the US is incredibly backwards when it comes to sexual education, among other things. I mean, so, yeah, and the problem with absence-only education is it doesn't work. So um, especially young women who have absence-only education have sex earlier. They uh, are... Um, when they do have sex, they um, will have it without protection. So rates of pregnancy are much higher. They report higher rates of non-consensual sex, higher rates of um, SCDs. I mean, it's just an absolute disaster. And it comes from this, this misunderstanding about kids are going to have sex. <laughs> and to teach abstinence only is just to engage a fantasy that you're going to be able to do something that is impossible, which is which is stop young people from having sex. I mean, I, I, I don't think we should stop them anyway. But even if you wanted to, you weren't going to do it. And you're definitely not going to do it by abstinence only education. And the commitment to abstinence only education is 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 an instance of being ideologically wedded, you know, to this this ideal of really female virginity over a commitment to the actual health and well being of young people, especially young women. And there's a sort of paradox, isn't there, in that you are denying them education over something that you are then fostering the ideal conditions for. You aren't teaching them about sex so they don't get pregnant, but then they're more likely to get pregnant because you're not teaching them about sex. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just one of those failures of realism. I mean, I just generally think that when we think about sex, whether it's um, porn or sex education or sex work, we just need to think about the actual real world effects of policies, as opposed to thinking mm. about policies as a kind of embodiment of a normative expression of what we'd like to be true. So I think a similar thing happens with with sex work, right? So I think there are a lot of feminists who are pro some form of criminalizing sex work, whether that's going to be like the full criminalization model that you have in the US or the partial criminalization of the UK or the Nordic model, which only criminalizes uh, the purchase and not the sale of sex. I think it's all motivated by an unwillingness to look at the actual real effect world effects of this kind of legislation. And the real world effects of this legislation is, is just completely detrimental to the women who sell sex, who are very often the worst off women in the society. And yet people cling to the idea of criminalizing it because they want the law to denounce sex work. They want, you know, it's a sort of similar kind of thing, I think, going on with abstinence only education. It, it's a failure. Um, and yet they want it to be the case that, you know, the education system is denouncing sex. A quick side note here. In late August, news broke that Gavin Williamson was looking to add in coercive control and hatred of women into the curriculum's new sex ed to be introduced later this year. I wanted to pick up by where you were saying about how this idea that school is somehow the totality of a young person's education, because of course it's only one way that they learn. And if they're not learning about sex at school, then they are, and even if they're learning about sex at school, they're learning a lot from the internet. And Gen Z will be the first generation to grow up with internet porn. You write of your students, almost every woman in the class would have had her first sexual experience, if not in front of a screen, then with a boy whose first sexual experience had been. And one student even says to you, if it weren't for pornography, how would we learn about sex? which is kind of 
chilling. Yeah. What are the ramifications? They're the first generation, but they're clearly not going to be the last. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because when I started um, teaching uh, my students about pornography, which is a kind of re- required topic when you're teaching feminist theory at the um, at the university level, I, I didn't really expect them to be very interested in the question. So there were these very heated debates in the 1970s and 1980s in, in the UK, in the US and elsewhere about pornography, right? When, porno- when porn was still <laughs> CD films and top shelf magazines. And there was this very heated debate and some feminists thought of porn as having this extraordinary world-making power, this power um, to make sex what it is, right, which is, on their view, a practice of male domination and female subordination. And then on the other hand, you had feminists who wanted to protect pornography as an exercise of free speech, or at at the very least, didn't like the idea of using the law to legislate to try and control uh, pornography on the grounds that that sort of dovetailed with a right-wing project of censorship and the control of sexuality. So I was sort of teaching them this historic debate and I was really amazed to find these students just totally riveted um, and coming down quite strongly on, as it were, the anti-porn side, which isn't to say that they in any way supported the idea of legislating against pornography. I mean, I think students, young people today understand better than anyone that legislation, especially of the internet, just doesn't work. It's just not feasible. They're also very sensitive to the fact that legislating against pornography is uh, very overwhelmingly likely to hurt um, the women who work in porn, who are very often driven by economic necessity. But at the same time, my students were responding very strongly to the idea that porn is really powerful. That porn isn't just entertainment, but actually kind of shapes their sexual psyches. And it was both the women and the men who were saying this. In some cases, the men were saying it even more strongly. I think they very often felt that they were required to act out a sexual script that was given to them by porn, and they didn't know how to find a way to step outside of that script. You know, I really don't have a very puritanical view of porn in the sense that I really would like to distance myself from those old school attempts to legislate against porn i think those those are those attempts are problematic and inevitably failures at the same time though uh, i think porn is in- incredibly uh, powerful and we're talking about mainstream porn here and mainstream porn that is uh, pirated and um <laughs> and fed to you by an algorithm constructed by one of the world's most powerful companies Right. So porn is also inseparable from capitalism right there. And again, we're getting back to this question of the algorithm, right? The way in which a platform shapes desire, because that's part of what's happening on pornography in pornography. Right. We think of pornography as this realm of infinite sexual possibility. But in fact, everything you're seeing on it is being fed to you by an algorithm that's bringing your desires in conformity with the desires of other people in your age group, in your country, and so on. So talking to my students makes me feel like we haven't really begun to understand uh, the the power of porn, um, at least internet porn. You saying that reminds me of the eternal conflict I have with that sort of liked this, 
try this next on sort of Netflix and the such like, which is basically the premise of it is this has been uniquely tailored to you on the understanding that it's uniquely tailored to millions of other people as well. So (laughs) it's both about you and nothing to do with you. And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. You quote John Stoltenberg saying, Porn tells lies about women, but the truth about men. That really blew my mind. Do you think that is ubiquitous in mainstream porn? Because I know there is a real drive and has been for some time towards female pleasure-centered pornography. Can that change? Yeah, I mean, you know, for since since the 80s and Candida Royale is the um the kind of really important uh, forerunner here. There have been all of these attempts to make feminist porn or forms of independent porn um of course there's lots of queer porn gay porn that that tries to kind of buck and subvert the standard patriarchal script the standard script where you have a dominant male whose ethos is his own pleasure seeking um and a compliant uh, subordinated female who uh, affords him pleasure. On one hand, there's a huge amount of porn that doesn't follow that script. And so you would think that would be emancipatory. On the the other hand, part of the problem is that it's just very rarely free. Mm. And it's also not selected for you by the algorithm. So if you go on to something like Pornhub, one of the, the big porn sites in the world, you know, that's not, it's, it's not going to be available or it's not going to be fed to you. Right. What's going to be fed to you is the kind of classic mainstream orthodox pornography. One of the false assumptions that you rail against is that the abolition of porn should be done in order to protect childhood innocence. And you don't really believe in that idea of childhood innocence full stop, do you? Childhood innocence is just a really politically pernicious idea, right? So it's an idea that's just sort of mobilized. I mean, think about, for example, it's mobilization against gay people, right? You can't have gay people in your community because uh, it's a threat to childhood innocence. Muslim men are a threat to your childhood, in- your innocent children. Uh, so this notion of the of the innocent child um, gets mets, mobilized all the time for very reactionary political ends. Of course, that's also true in the case of abortion politics. It's also just kind of descriptively inaccurate. Children are different from adults. Um, I certainly don't think children uh, should be exposed to the full um, range of adult human experience. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge the emotional and psychic complexity of childhood and not think of it as um, 
it's completely cut off from the adult world. It's never been totally cut off from the adult world. And so when people invoke uh, children, um, I think we should immediately be alert and think about what it is they're trying to deny or do. You use uh, some great examples of how this is actually something that comes up again and again throughout generations. You know, this idea that that young people now are more receptive to undue influence than they've ever been or that they're being they're maturing younger and younger but parents in the 50s were horrified by this new practice of going steady so is it that every generation always thinks that this is going to be the great undoing of our youth yeah and and that's a phenomenon that goes back to the ancient world you can read about this theme of worrying about the next generation and its and its corruption uh, in Plato. So it's it's a it's a kind of seems like one of the few generally universal uh, phenomena is worrying that the next generation is somehow going to be going to be lost. And I think part of what happens is that we forget that the current generation is is growing up in a different world and so is a, is differently equipped for that world. So when we think about, for example, social media, a lot of people, I mean, including myself, think, oh, thank God I didn't grow up with Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat or indeed uh, just like phones that were capable of taking high definition photographs. And we project our younger selves into the contemporary world and correctly um, infer that we wouldn't be able to cope. But young people themselves have grown up with the internet and they're often much savvier about it than than we are. So I think there's, there's this pull, uh, this kind of understandable pull towards hysteria about uh, young people. At the same time, I do think that social media, the internet, internet porn, I mean, they are kind of importantly different from a phenomenon like going steady. I do think that uh, the internet has changed our modes of interacting with each other in quite profound ways that we don't fully understand yet. I mean, certainly it's changed the notion of sexual discovery, hasn't it? Because two hapless virgins no longer come together wondering what goes where. They tend to come to it with precise knowledge of what things look like up close quite literally the ins and outs, there's a lot more knowledge in, in probably quite a um, daunting, really daunting way, rather than coming to it as two people working it out. Mm, yeah. And so it's so funny when um, that, that student of mine said, but if it weren't for porn, you know, how would we know how to have sex? And I remember uh, her saying that and I just... I was so taken aback and I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> you, none of you are going to have the experience of just kind of working it out with another equally clueless yeah. person. And that's really, and you know, you say that they, they come with a lot of knowledge and that's right, but they also come with a huge amount of mythology, right? And misinformation mm. and misunderstanding. They think sex has to look like porn. And unsurprisingly, they are either, they're, well, they're very often sorely disappointed or they feel bad about themselves for not being able to perform uh, in a kind of pornograph, according to a pornographic script. I think they come with knowledge, but they also come with a, a lot of misunderstanding, which, which makes things worse. Your book, as you have mentioned, is expanded from an essay that you wrote about uh, incel culture. 
and the utopian socialist Charles Fourier proposed a guaranteed sexual minimum, basically the sexual equivalent of UBI, for every man and woman as a way of making sex feel fair and well apportioned. And that meant it would potentially avoid situations where men became violent thanks to sex deprivation or could blame their violence on sex deprivation. Fourier's idea is that, um, you know, he, he in his utopian society, it wouldn't be that anyone would be coerced into having sex with other people, but that there would be a class of people, he called them the amorous nobility, who were sort of so virtuous, um, giving, that they would spontaneously want to have sex with those people who weren't themselves desirable. And so it's kind of a model of sexual surrogacy. I've read a few tweets and comment pieces suggesting that the redistribution of sex could work. One tweet I read said that men between the ages of 18 to 25 could each be supplied a woman, such as an ex-offender, to prevent them from becoming an incel. And the idea that we could dish out women as if they're cheese sandwiches on a school trip in order to solve male violence feels both horrible and absurd. The, the reason I don't even think we should think about such a thing in our contemporary world is because uh, sex is just so often um, something that goes hand in hand with coercion. So many women and many men experience forms of sexual coercion ranging from um, the obvious case, case of, of rape to grayer, uh, more complicated cases where consent is given, but it's given because there is a felt need or expectation that sex is something that has to be had. So given the inseparability, I think, of coercion and sex in our current sexual politics, we there's really zero point in even entertaining something like Fourier's proposal. Young people are having less sex than ever before. The news reports on it fairly regularly. And in Japan, that's kind of frequently invoked as the most terrifying of these statistics. And to be fair, it is quite terrifying to read. 44% of millennials are virgins. Why is the trend towards consuming or observing rather than participating in sex worrying? Does it have... I feel like it must do, but maybe maybe it doesn't. Does it have a big psychological impact? Can it kind of, for a generation of Japanese men and women, that's almost half, will that change the way they communicate? Will that change kind of interpersonal relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fascinating phenomenon. So I don't think we completely understand what forces are at work. I mean, obviously there's something to do with the kind of perceived lack of a future, and I don't blame young people whatsoever for, for feeling quite a bit of economic and social and ecological despair. There's something to do, obviously, with the internet and new forms of interacting and connecting that have replaced actual face-to-face in-person interaction. Um, but I, I think there's also something deeper going on, and I, I don't totally have a grip on it. I mean, the reason politicians worry about it is because of, of reproduction rates. I, I don't particularly worry about it for those reasons. Um, and for generations of women, um, reproduction, child rearing has been a source of both joy, but also in, incredible um, violence and oppression and harm. And so there is also the possibility that, you know, just 
women, as they increasingly have the choice not to have children, simply don't want to have children. And if we're really going to respond to to that crisis um, in a feminist way, it requires that we think about what it would mean to make having children something that women would freely want to do. Things like universal and really excellent childcare, uh, universal basic income, um, better investment in education, certainly much better investment in healthcare. But people having, young people having less sex. Yeah, I mean, I did have the experience of talking to um, some uh, wonderful young women who are all about 17, um, who are at a school in, in London. And one of the things that they talked about was interacting, they were at a girls' school, so they interacted a lot with boys at a at a boys' school or at various boys' schools. Um, they preferred interacting with them online. I think they felt it was somehow safer and they could exercise more control over those interactions. And then when they did meet up with these boys in person, they often had the experience of them being not as nice or being somewhat coercive. So I'm interested to know the extent to which what's going on has to do with young women renegotiating the terms on which they have sex. And that's something I haven't heard discussed, Um, but I suspect there might be some of that going on. And insofar as that's going on, it might not be such a bad thing for young people to be having less sex. I don't mean to sound like a prude here. I just mean a lot of the sex that a lot of people have been having has been painful or um, uh, harmful in one way or another. It hasn't necessarily been on equal terms or the terms that people really want. So I don't think we should just kind of assume that people having less sex is a bad thing and people having more sex is a good thing. It it depends what kind of sex and how free that sex really is. I wanted to talk to you about a part of cancel culture that we see fiercely debated at this moment, whether misguided romantics, quote unquote, of yours should be classed as predators or just a bit out of date. And you cite numerous examples of People like the comedian Louis C.K., who was quote unquote cancelled for masturbating in front of women without their consent, but he was back on stage a year later making really offensive comments about uh, Asian men and trans people, which really elucidates how flimsy this idea of cancel culture is. But I think there's an idealism sometimes about how we treat men who have abused women, men who anecdotally have been cancelled, because as these stories multiply, more women are speaking, apart from anything else. And these men are very often young. I think it becomes untenable that they will simply disappear into obscurity or never work again. What do you think the consequences should be? What is the penance or the learning? What I'm most interested in now is not necessarily the cancelling, but where we go after the cancellation, whether or not that cancellation exists beyond rhetoric. It, it is one of the questions I, I try to grapple with in, in the book. So first of all, I think you're right to be circumspect about the very notion of cancel culture, because few of the people who have been supposedly cancelled really have been totally cancelled in the sense of um, no longer being able to uh, make their livelihoods, no longer having a platform. I mean, someone like Louis C.K. is just a great example, right, back on stage several months later, sell out shows. At the same time, I I do think that feminists need to 
have a much more complex and subtle discussion about what it really takes to change a sexual culture. The urge to punish bad actors, to punish men who harass and abuse or just degrade is very understandable. Um, given the long history, the, the, the eternally long history of men using the power of various institutions, including state institutions, to punish women whenever they step out of line uh, sexually. There's a kind of very understandable human desire on the part of women to not just punish kind of sexual predators in themselves, but as kind of symbols of all of those generations of men who've got away with so much for so long. And of course, in, in, in some cases, you know, Harvey Weinstein, for example, I mean, you just have uh, people who are sexual predators and who are probably, I'm sorry to say, irredeemable. Um, but then there's a, a very large uh, class of people who I, I, I think I think it would be disastrous to write off. I mean, Jacqueline Rose, one of my fa favorite feminist theorists, has this wonderful line um, where she says, how is it that feminists of all people um, who could deny men any gap between the, the possibilities of their own minds and the kind of sexual script written for them by patriarchy and how could feminists deny that gap given that they have fought so hard for the gap between who women really are and what they can be and what men say they are so i think we have to maintain that gap as much as we can for everyone right we have to leave open the possibility of of change and transformation at the same time as recognizing and uh, wrongdoing and calling it out and so I think we need as feminists to be thinking about models of um, repair and transformation that are more creative than the kind of old rote styles of crime and retributive punishment. I'm not saying that uh, wrongdoers should never suffer, but you might think that the suffering has to be, has to be towards some end. So th there is a form of suffering when you realize, truly understand, truly come to understand what it is you've done to other people. And that's a kind of suffering that can also be productive, right? That can bring about change. I wanted to end with a fascinating trend that you report from the pandemic, the mass migration of casual employees into the porn industry. A wave of unemployment in March of last year saw 60,000 new models signed up to OnlyFans in the first two weeks of March alone. And the cam site is my girl offered McDonald's employees who were set to be fired without sick pay, a special deal where they could keep 90% of their earnings. What are the ramifications of this segue from one precarious type of work into another precarious type of work, but this time based around sex? The, the short answer is it shouldn't be necessary. When you have a global pandemic, what you should have, it's the, you should have the state stepping in. I mean, actually the state should do this even when we're not in a pandemic. No one should have to because they're fired from McDonald's, now sign up for a camming site. 
right? I mean, it's just outrageous, especially in a country like the UK. I mean, that's as rich as like the UK or the US that so many people have had to turn to sex work. And of course, there were lots and lots of people, women, uh, especially on the margins of society, disabled women, trans women, women of color, immigrant women who were engaged in sex work before because it was the only kind of viable source of uh, money with which to take care of their families. It's problematic, but the solution to it is absolutely not to legislate against camming. The first thing I would want is for these cam sites to be um, run out of the market by camming sites that are owned and operated by sex workers themselves. Part of what's so infuriating about this situation in which you're in is that uh, women and, and men, because there are lots of men on these camming sites as well, they you know have to just hand over a large amount of the money they generate um, to someone who just you know runs a website providing very little uh, service, right? And what would be great is if you got a cooperative of sex workers who you know collectively put together a website um, that that they could then use to sell sell their services. The fundamental thing to say here is that a global pandemic um, should be the occasion for rethinking the provision of basic social services and the fact that. We live in countries where billionaires have got systematically uh, wealthier over the, the course of the pandemic and uh, women have been fired on on mass. Uh, inequality has massively grown. I mean, this is, a, this is an absolute crisis. It's a crisis that reveals pre-existing crises of inequality. The capture of state of the state uh, of the government by uh, basically by by the wealthy. The camming sites should absolutely have a right to exist, not because of free speech concerns, but because, um, you know, women have the right to uh, make money and they will be just worse off if they didn't have that right. We don't even have to say in an ideal world, in a very close by world, right, a very nearby world in which we reprioritized everyone's well-being over the benefit of uh the rich and the few, uh, we, we wouldn't have seen that mass flight uh, to those calming sites. Thank you so much, Amir. I think that's a great note to end on. That's absolutely wonderful. I've had such a lovely time. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Doing It Right. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? from any bookshop you like independent always better try hive if you're shopping online in which i discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life 